We're working our way through, and actually we're finishing um, our study of 2 Corinthians. Next week we'll begin to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, but finishing up, and the thing about that's unique about 2 Corinthians, it's, as we've described it, it's probably the most autobiographical of Paul's letters. Is he tells us a lot about himself and what he thinks and feels. And as we bring this letter to a close and he closes the letter, we're going to learn that with respect to an upcoming visit that he planned to make to the Corinthians at the time that he wrote the letter, that he is both looking forward to that visit and not looking forward to the visit. And that's what we learn. Let me start in Second Corinthians chapter uh, 13 and verse uh, 1. Paul writes, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof, that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Uh, Paul writes, and he says, this is the third time I am coming, and every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was one of the principles of Judaism. That if you were going to charge somebody with some type of offense, you needed to have corroborating testimony. You needed to have witnesses. So you couldn't indict somebody just by saying, I saw X person X do Y. You had to have corroborating witnesses. And so Paul doesn't have other witnesses other than himself, but he has brought some warnings to them on two different occasions. And when he comes this third time, he sees this as a time when he won't just bring warnings, but he will act in a more stern way. He doesn't indicate what that is. But the first visit he made to Corinth, he spent a year and a half with them, did a lot of miracles. And that's when he established the church. He then made another visit. He had a very, very difficult confrontation with at least one individual in the church, probably supported by some others. It was a very painful visit that he cut short because he did not want to continue to, to be involved in this controversy. It was hard on him because those Corinthians who had learned and been nurtured by him kind of stood off to the side and didn't really back Paul up. They didn't maybe join in with the um, the allegations being made by these individuals who are making trouble, but they didn't speak in Paul's defense either. And therefore, Paul, in this letter, has had to defend himself. And as we've looked through, he feels foolish doing so because he understands that his purpose is not to draw attention to himself. The problem is these leaders coming in, they do draw attention to themselves. They, they note how well they speak, the visions that they have. Now, Paul doesn't lead that way. What he understands, and as we will see, Paul directs the focus away from himself toward the message. 
but what he understands. If they dismiss him, they will dismiss the message that he has been sent to give them, the message that when they believe it, will allow them to access the power of God. Therefore, in order to allow them to continue to access the message, what Paul does is he kind of talks about himself and why they should follow him. When he makes this planned third visit, he is prepared to be forceful because this will be the third time. And he says, okay, now I've given you fair warning. Uh, apparently, they seek proof that Christ is speaking in Paul. Uh, his response to these individuals who oppose him may have triggered some doubt. They might have expected somebody who represents God to be more heavy-handed in dealing with individuals who oppose him. They perhaps, they believe maybe that he, lacked, that he lacked the authority or something, or lacked the courage to use it. Um, and they might have expected as well, the Corinthians might have expected for Paul to do a miracle against his adversaries, you know, bring lightning down from heaven or do something like that. I mean, show your stuff. If you're, in a, if you're a representative of God, show it. Um, they might have thought that an apostle would, should be tougher, louder, bolder, more fiery, more miracles. The Corinthians understood power differently than Paul understood power. They saw it, the Corinthians understood power as something exerted by assertive, domineering, forceful people. So power is evidenced by somebody who speaks strongly and acts assertively. Paul sees power differently. Again, in verse 4, we saw, he says, he was speaking of Christ crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul sees power differently because of two distinct reasons. Number one, Paul understands the power is not in miracles. The power is in the message. And the power is not in the messenger, but the message. But Paul understands the power is in the message and not in miracles. Um, when it says that Jesus was crucified in weakness, the, the, the crucifixion displayed apparent weakness. What the spectators did, they taunted Jesus, saying, if you're the Son of God, come off there. I mean, do a miracle. Show us your divine connection. If you show us the divine connection, then they this would convince them that he was the Son of God. And yet he didn't do that. He didn't display divine authority in rescuing himself, even although we understand that he could have called down angels from heaven and done so. He could have given them a very, very powerful evidence of miraculous divine power, but he did not do so purposefully. Um, imagine for most of us, there have been times where we were confronted by challenges, maybe physical or mental or spiritual, and we then, or maybe the 
the sickness of somebody very close to us and we talk to God, which is appropriate. God, please save this person, you know, heal them. And and it would and we would have felt deeply and have felt if, if you do so, this would be so good for my faith. And I imagine that there might have been times that maybe God responded, but more often than not, times where he didn't. When we we would like to see a miracle, believing that some type of miraculous thing would validate faith. But God didn't do it with Jesus. Not at the point where he was putting us in a position where we could understand the message. And uh, they want this from Paul, but Paul is not going to give in. The, the funny thing is, he had already done miracles in Corinth. But apparently there weren't enough of them. It says in 12.12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Again, he had already done miracles, but that's the problem. When when you're relying on miracles, there's never enough of them. And, And that's what they experience. Miracles are tricky. It's because they have occurred, perhaps do occur, but they can be counterfeited. Paul had this to say. Let me just read from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 10. Just listen to what he says about the problem with trusting in miracles. He talks about the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing before, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Well, Paul is pointing out that miracles can be fabricated. It can seem like they're from God, but Paul is pointing out here that sometimes they're not. They can be true wonders ascribed to God, but they're not really from him. That's why it's tricky trusting in miracles. And Paul draws a distinction between loving miracles and loving truth. In order to be saved, we need to love truth, even when it's not associated with miracles. It's true because it's true, not it's true because it is reinforced by miracles that I see. And that's where God wants us to place our faith in what he says, not in what we see. So he wants to teach us to trust him despite miraculous evidence, not because of it. So to put it another way, sometimes we get the impression that faith exists for miracles, that if we can amass enough faith, it's like currency that we can kind of give God our faith and he'll give us a miracle back. It's not the way it works. Faith doesn't exist for miracles. Miracles exists for faith. The miracles God did in Christ when he was here and that he did through Paul, those existed so that they would come to trust him as a messenger, listen to what he said, and put their faith in it. Uh, Paul sees divine power because he understood the power is not in miracles. It's in the message. He also understood, well, that the power is is not even in the messenger. It's what he says in Romans 1, 16 to 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What it describes, the message that God has sent his son, sent Paul and others to reflect, the power of God is in the message. It's not in the messenger. It's not in the miracles. The power is in the messenger. I mean, the message, excuse me. Um, Earlier in his first letter, Paul said the same thing to the Corinthians. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of power. To augment the message actually empties the cross of power. That's what Paul understood. The power is in the message, and that's what he wanted the, the Corinthians to believe. He goes on and tells them then in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what's right. Though we may have seemed to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. He's going to come. And if he is still being opposed this third time. He's ready to take action in defending the message, not in defending himself. He tells them, examine yourself to see whether you were in the faith. It's a question. How do you examine yourself? Paul talked about earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to what he said. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Now, this seems kind of strange, but what he's saying, the way they will stand the test is if they do what Paul is asking them to do. Now, that might be strange. So what, they're going to pass the test if they do everything he says. Um, but I think the way Paul understood it, I think it's it's probably He's thinking about what Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus' words were in John chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. What Jesus is indicating is that the test of his sheep are whether or not they follow his voice. A sheep will follow the voice of a shepherd because that's the way a shepherd builds in responsiveness to the sheep. The shepherd will go through the very long process of causing the sheep to identify the shepherd's voice with safety and security so that they build a responsiveness to it. And when a shepherd has done so, again, I've told you this before, you can have three or four different flocks in a watering hole. And in first century Israel, what the shepherd would do, now there's all these different sheep, they're mixed up, they're going here and there. The shepherd calls out to the sheep and just his sheep will pick up their ears and they will move away, even though they're scattered all over the place. Why will they do that? Because the shepherd has gone through the process of cultivating voice recognition in the minds of the sheep so that when they're distressed or when they're confused, he speaks to them and his voice draws them. That's what Paul is identifying. He indicates or he believes he speaks on behalf of God. Therefore, in as much as the Corinthians think about Paul and respond to his voice, this evidences that they are God's sheep because they are following the voice of the one God put in place. And because this is the way it works, Paul doesn't need to be heavy handed. He doesn't need to slap them. He doesn't need to do miracles. He doesn't need to force their compliance, because what Paul understands is that God does things in such a way that the sheep follow the voice. Again, if you remember, when Paul was on his way to Damascus, before he had become a follower of Christ, in fact, on that trip, when he saw a bright light from heaven and was knocked off of his donkey, We've talked about it, but Jesus says something very interesting to him that I think is often misunderstood. Paul writes, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. What you would do if you weren't the shepherd and you had to get the sheep to do something, you would take a pointy stick and you'd prod them. You'd goad them. That's how you that's how you had to make them move. Now the reason you had to goad some the sheep, because you're not the shepherd. And they're not going to follow your voice, so you have to force them to go the direction. What Jesus says. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he answers the question. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what I think Jesus is doing? Those who claim to speak for God 
were heavy-handed. They prodded and goaded Paul. And I think what Paul experiences in his conversation with Jesus, you're persecuting me because you believe that God goads people. But Jesus didn't goad. I think what it's almost like, look, Ma, no goad. So what's the point? God doesn't goad us into doing what he wants. He doesn't threaten us. He doesn't force us because he doesn't goad. A shepherd doesn't goad. A butcher does. What God cultivates in us is an awareness of his voice. So here's the here's the deal then. What Paul wants them to do, when you feel forced or pushed, that's not his voice. Because he didn't force or push, they're kind of questioning whether Paul speaks for God, but what Paul is saying that that's how you can know somebody does speak for God. If you feel weighed down and burdened, you're being goaded and it is not God. In God we trust, not in God we trust. Um, in fact, and to, I'll close with this. It's, there's, there's, it's interesting, I think, there's a difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. A bad shepherd will talk about bad sheep and how weak people are and how bad sheep are. A good shepherd won't talk about bad sheep. He'll talk about bad shepherds because it's the job of the shepherd to cultivate responsiveness. So what does that mean for us? Tune into his voice. Make room for it. And as we become aware of his good news, the message of the gospel, what will happen over time, you'll find yourself becoming less frightened of God. Your sense of trust in God will increase. And what you'll find is that some of the things that he wants us to do don't feel so burdensome because you will be being drawn to do them, not driven to do them. God doesn't drive us. He draws us. That's why his message is really important to keep in mind. Let me pray for us. Now, thank you for the, the testimony of Paul. He goes through a lot in this letter describing his gentleness. He's not forceful. He can be. But what he understands is that the message of the gospel cultivates responsiveness. And because of the message, the messenger does not need to be forceful because the message is powerful. And yet sometimes a very assertive, frightening messenger can take away from the power of the message. That's what Paul is dealing with here. He wants people to listen to him, but we, he doesn't want it to force it. And I want to thank you for the way you set things up, that you go through the process of causing us to be responsive to your voice. And I think what that means, as we learn to identify your voice, it's that which cultivates responsiveness in us. It's like you've already done that. And what we would have us to do is distinguish between those who speak from you speak for you and those who don't. I pray you'd give us wisdom. Help us to know the message. 
so that we could know if the messenger is speaking for you or not. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.